Di, how are you doing? Good to see you. Hi, Richmond. Great, uh, great to have the opportunity to chat this morning. Excellent. Where, where, where do you find yourself right now? Where are you? Yeah, interesting. Uh, in a transition, I, that's, that's the best way to describe it. I've had a few transitions in my career and in my life. Um, and I'm in a transition. Um, came back from Hong Kong. Uh, worked in Hong Kong for 12 years as a senior manager, coach. Um, and decided to come back to the UK just under 12 months ago. Um, back into the teaching profession, um, which was my early career. For 14 years as a as a teacher and senior manager in my early career, back into teaching, but um, yeah, some interesting discoveries uh, along the way over the last eight months. Transition back from 12 years um, in Hong Kong, but also transition back into education. So it's been a it's been a, it's an interesting period for me. I decided to um, to finish that role um, at Seaford College and um, and move on. So in a bit of a limbo and transition again. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought you were just going to say that you were in your lounge, actually, but um, that's a good intro. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. I am in my lounge at the moment. Um, and very, it's a very contemplating position to be in, actually. I, I spend a lot of time in it at the moment, uh, restructuring my days. And uh, it's, it's wonderful to be able to restructure it with, with a chat with someone like yourself who's, who's um, putting everybody's sort of thoughts out there um, through these podcasts. And uh, it's just, yeah, it's just nice to spend some time with someone authentic and uh, in touch with uh, the outside world and, uh, and what's going on in, in, in the current, uh, current pandemic and, and transition for that at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's always transitions. I mean, I mean, going back then, what what kind of style of teacher would you say you were when you when you embarked on your career? I'd say it was very transactional. It was very, um, you know, back in the in the eighties, I came through a traditional sort of um, Welsh Valleys upbringing where it was ruled in education, corporate classroom, through a borderline. There, you used to have the DAP as we call them, you know, the gyms DAP as we call it in Wales, but the, the old black. Plimsoll across the back of um, the backside uh, when I was in in high school, um, and uh, yeah, I was in a transition there. Life is transitions, isn't it? So you know, the eighties then saw less of that. However, you know, um, I went into the into the profession in an era where you were told straight. So I was very much a transactional teacher coach um, early in my career. It was a tell. It was when I look back on it, it, it was definitely shaming kids at the time um you know that's how we were told we rule rule with an iron rod uh taking no prisoners and and really we did tell and we did um discipline through shouting and anger um and i was a young man i did i you know the internet wasn't around you know the, the information that's available to us these days um wasn't about the research hadn't been done into into learning and i didn't know what transformational coaching and teaching was at the time but through self-awareness, raising my self-awareness and continued learning over the last 30, 35 years, I've changed as a, as a man. Um, certainly changed hugely since being a young man um, in the teaching profession, coaching profession. It's been my career. And so, yeah, I'm very transactional, very tell. Uh, get, get results in six, eight weeks and then uh, behaviours return to the norm. Um, so it was hard work. It was hard work as a coach and as a teacher. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, were, were there a variety of role models or, or in those days was everyone kind of doing it in the same way? So there wasn't someone else kind of going, well, look, maybe we should try this. That's a great question. I don't think 
I didn't have role models telling me. When I look back on it through self-reflection, I've done a lot of a lot of searching and removing a few masks, uh, masks of masculinity, masks of growing up over the years. But I've I've done a lot of that, and there were certainly role models, behavioural role models, people modelling good behaviours. Different. Um, a lot of my teachers, uh, a lot of this would have been learnt on self-reflection through the, the people that taught me. Um, my my informative years were very much um, in high school, very much dominated by female teachers, tutors, wonderful leaders at the time. So their feminine energy was very calming, um, uh, very much different to your traditional, um, you know, senior masters who who would would be the instructional and tell you. And however, you know, when am I more, when I reflect on it. 80% of my upbringing, that's why I believe I am in touch with my feminine side and the softer elements, which are then masked um, because of my entry into a physical confrontation sport like rugby and then being a PE teacher and dominantly teaching males in my career. I, I very much adopted that masculine approach. Um, however, then on reflection, obviously the, the informative years were, were dominated by my mum two grandmothers because my my grandfathers and my dad were out at, out at work uh, late hours you know working in the mines and the and the steel industry so however when I look back going back to the role models yeah the behaviors that that the teachers that I resonated with certainly were transformational my PE teacher Mr Williams um just to this day remains uh, you know someone who I hugely respect calm and can't even remember can't actually remember him ever shouting at me Probably did, but I when I look back, when I look back, he was very calming, ex-athlete, loved me because I loved sport, I guess. And yeah, he transformed you to be one of the, the, the people. And then my French teacher who was who was again Mr. Harris, who who was also head of the, the youth club, again, transformational type of never never shouted, loved his five side soccer, was a runner, head of French. My French was rubbish, but I was not bad at five side soccer. So um you know, we, we got on rail and he, he took the local youth club. So when I look back, certainly the most informative uh, and most influential teachers that I had were, were definitely transformational teachers. Didn't know that at the time, yeah. um, but certainly people that I've modelled myself as I've grown as a man in, into the teaching profession, coaching profession. So you, you've kind of done a circle then in, in a way to... <laughs> To sort of consider some of those characteristics of, of teaching and coaching, but but then sort of went through, as you said, that that more traditional old school style in the early years when you were when you were teaching. Um, do, you, do you think there's any value in in those kinds of ways? Because they're still around, you know, they're still oh, absolutely. I don't, know what the, don't know what the percentages are, but but, you know, it definitely happens still the kind of the shouting and shaming style. Absolutely. I think it's still, unfortunately, for the Gen Z kids, and we'll come on to, uh, you know, generations and, and, and how differently kids need to be taught, or I believe they need to be taught now. And, and science is, is telling us that, and research is telling us that, you know, you need to address the different gen generations that have come through the digital age, the Gen Z as it is at the moment, the boomer as I am, you know. So we are, we are different learners and we are different people. And I'm not sure whether... Uh, the the um, educationalists of the world um, are moving as quickly as the digital age has moved, and that's almost impossible, as we know. A ten-year period most most changes any any child, any 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 one in the world has experienced. You know, in, on the introduction of the internet and 
and social media, etc. And we know that's come with its its issues and problems, but more, more of that later, you know. But Mark Brackett, um, who Professor Mark Brackett, who you know his, his latest book is Permission to Feel, he deals hugely with it with this learning cycle. He's been researching 30, 35 years, cutting edge 30, 35 years ago. We wouldn't have been aware of him, you know, the internet. Um, wouldn't have been around, so we we didn't have access to this kind of information. But you know his 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 book, I'd recommend it to anyone who's listening to this. You know, particularly if you're in the teaching profession, and he talks he talks about well, we're not going to change um, the, the, the society today. The young the young kids come into it unless we change as teachers and, and, and leaders, um, and and that's the fundamental. He does talk about permission to feel, which is you know recognizing your emotions and. And believes passionately that, that these emotions to the Gen Z um, kids of, of today should be taught. They should sit alongside maths and English. And I firmly believe I can come back into education. That's true. And so, you know, that research is out there. And, and as he rightly identifies, he was rejected, continues to be rejected by education in the States, introducing his platform of emotional learning it's difficult if 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 the senior management or 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 um or teachers don't accept that there's other ways to teach then the old-fashioned as i will call it um traits remain and and it does remain embedded across education um there's no doubt about it i i witness it in coaching i witness it in teaching i've, I've been fortunate enough to come back into teaching over the last year i've witnessed it in 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 teaching um directly in the classroom and on the sports field and I've also I still also witness it at rugby clubs rugby grounds and in coaching rugby and you know I, I, again I, I would have been that person 25 years ago I would have been that person 15 years ago very direct aggressive on occasions um, thinking that I was doing the right thing and improving performance I'm a firm believer now I, I wasn't I was temporarily putting something right which then was a transactional um comment rather than a transformational um system that was was bringing young men it was young men predominantly i was coaching because it was it was male rugby um i wasn't making better men for other people i was making a you know i've adjusted some performance maybe for one or two games but i wasn't thinking i wasn't thinking large i've changed a lot hugely over the last 15 years in my approach what what was it then that that shifted your your approach and at that time was there a particular incident or someone or, or was it just sort of over time you became exposed to different thinking and were open to it? There's lots of variables. I would say um, self awareness would be a, a major one, and one of the huge the biggest influences on my coaching and teaching career was the introduction of performance lifestyle. What is performance lifestyle? Performance lifestyle was very much brought in to Australia, particularly in cricket in its early days. So it was looking after the athletes' needs um, away from the, the, the away from cricket, away from the sport. So looking at home life, looking at careers, looking at um, connectivity, looking at other things. Um, particularly when we saw, um, you know the boom of professional sport mid 90s you know the introduction of full-time coaching platforms the introduction of s and c coaches and 
the Welsh Rugby Union at the time were the first team sport in, in, in the UK to adopt and employ a performance lifestyle manager. Mm. Um, in Alan and Alan Davis, who's one of the leads in in, in this in this field uh, up to today, and um, I was fortunate enough to have him attached to me when I coached the Wales under nineteens, uh, the Wales under twenty ones, and the Wales sevens. And the likes of Alan Wynne Jones, who people will know, you know, you know, went on to be a fantastic ambassador for rugby and, and Wales, and still is. And Jamie Roberts, I'm just mentioning a couple of names that are still playing in the game that just overlapped that period when I was fortunate to coach alongside them and coach them as young men in the under-19s. And Alan Alan Davis, uh, the performance lifestyle manager at the Welsh Rugby Union at the time, was very informative. He opened up, he gave me the ability to see that transformational action. He allowed me to see another another aspect of young men's lives and that it wasn't it wasn't all about, you know, just getting them on the park, getting a performance against England or against Ireland, or against, it was about the player and what, what mattered. Um, yeah, I can tell you a little story there about this was one of the this was one of the areas. You know, we we were we were training and, and we, we played England actually. It was England down at down at Bridge End, and um, you know, I'd been coaching and Luke Chartres again, maybe no Bath um, and, and Wales sixty odd caps to Wales. He was in the second row at the time, and we had a we we were we were four points behind with with. Last last lineup, five meter lineup, and um, really we were dominating. We should have caught it, driven over, and uh, our our prop, our lifting front lifting prop, um, uh, failed to lift Luke, and we missed the ball. Ball was kicked into touch. End of sports. Disappointed, you know, angry, lots of emotion. Lost to England down in Wales. This was at under nineteen level, and four or five days later, Alan called me. And he said, um, he said, I gotta tell you something, you know, Yayan's distraught. He, he missed, he missed the lift. And and he, you know, he doesn't know what to do with himself. He's had so much stick, he knows it was his call. But he said, I gotta tell you, he said, did you, did you know that he was numerically dyslexic? And I said, What? What does that mean? He said, Well, if the signal is is any third digit after the call, he, he can't pick up the call. Right. So the call at the time was three digits, four digits, and the fourth or fifth digit was the signal. And he only used the first two digits. And it took out it took Alan, you know, performance lifestyle managed to sit down, talk to the kid. Everybody was saying he's just brain dead. Everybody was saying, Well, what the hell have you done? The reality of it was he was numerically dyslexic. And it, it's a story that I've always thought yeah. about. And I'm talking that's 25 years ago, and it's just stuck with me. So that one if you talk about incidents that transform my approach, that would be one of them. Yeah. Wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, you're alluding to obviously this this sort of person first approach rather than just a player. It's, you know, talking about a, a human being um, with with a chaotic mind and like, like everybody else trying to do things in a particular way with the set of tools that they've basically been given. We, you know, we don't choose our our mind and our body and our, our upbringing and who we learn from in the early days. Um and but then you discover something about someone because you've made that that time. So that that seems to be the most important thing is to make that time to get to know people and their motivations. Absolutely. I, speed dating, I call it now. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't take a lot. Um, and this is the, the issue I suppose I've, I've had 
with them busy world and and you know coaches if I'm looking after a set one of the first things I did when I came to Seaford was take time to try and ask in the first two or three lessons it wasn't it was name and then it was so oh, so where you live in was mum and dad got any got any um brothers or sisters just 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 to personalize um you know the connection with 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 the people that you're working with and your colleagues as well. I, again, as a leader in, in, in Hong Kong, I took time, any new members of staff, when I started, when I transitioned, I made sure that I sat down with either people that I was managing or working with. So there's that humanistic, that's where I believe humanistic leadership is, humanistic coaching and teaching is. And not knowing that, you know, what would it have taken for going back to you and who missed the lift? What would it have taken for me to have just said, how's things going? Do you struggle with anything? Are there any, you know, there's about four or five standard questions to take five minutes um, in a, like a speed date of five, 10 minutes that can tell you a lot about the person. And I think that's hugely important, particularly uh, with our Gen Z kids. You know, if you look into now, the Gen Z kid, the vital part about it is, is understanding that generation that we now teach and that will be the next teachers and the next leaders. And we have to adjust as older people. That that gen that generation, what can you just clarify the age group that you're talking about? Yeah, born, born 96 and 1996 onwards. They are unique. They are unique in that they are the only generation ever to be fully educated and part of the digital age. And if you look at all the research that's been done around it, they have certain key characteristics and aspects, a lot are good and a lot leave them vulnerable. You know, research has, has told us they have the shortest um, concentration span of any generation. My generation, I believe yours as well, um, <laughs> which means I'm a little bit older than you, I think. <laughs> but um, you know, um, our our concentration span at the time measured. This is all scientifically backed up um, through research, and and our our generation was six minutes concentration before you then get distracted. The Gen Z is forty seconds. Wow. So my three kids, my three kids have a concentration span. Because my three kids are Gen Z, they have a concentration span of forty seconds. Ours was six minutes. Oh, when you say that to someone, it doesn't sound a lot, but you know, it's massive. Yeah, you know, it's absolutely incredibly massive. No, even just that statistic, we took it into a classroom, and then teachers are not understanding that. So kids looking out the window, wanting to do something else, or reaching for their phone, just our knowledge that there's a massive difference and the concentration span is so is so small. Mm. You know, again, I don't want to be negative. They are the most intelligent generation that we've ever produced because their access to information is just through the roof. You know, it is completely different to what we had. I can see my my 10 volumes of the Encyclopedia Britannica on my mum and dad's sideboard that I used to go and have to look at to uh, to find out information. And so they are they they are the um they are the uh, most intelligent generation due to the concentration, due to this, this fast information, they, they are the most, they, they are the generation that needs frequent feedback. But you think about that in a teaching sense, 
Well, they get it on a computer. They get it when they, you know, they're online. They get instant feedback. Mm. So as teachers, teachers and coaches, we we have to be feeding back regularly to them. Gone are the days of sitting like I did and saying, right, get on with your work for a half an hour. And people say, well, they, they should. They should be getting on with their work. <laughs> well, they should, but the digital age, this generation don't. They need feedback. They need stimulation. And we're not gonna, we're not gonna knock that out of them. They're a generation, they've been conditioned at five, six, seven years of age. So we've got to, we've got to change. We've got to mold our learning and our platform, our teaching platform, and our coaching platform. Um, just finishing up on the Gen Z, they're the generation that spent that spend less time directly in contact with friends and loved ones of any other generation. Fact. How many times do I say, oh, he's at your appearance scene. He's up in the bedroom again. Mm. Or she's never down talking to us. Is that a problem? It's a problem for me. It was a problem for me as a parent. The reality of it is, is my sons and my son and daughters, that's their escape. That's their go-to. There's a course, there's a, and we'll talk maybe about some of the well-being stuff. There's a limit to it in screen time. But let's work with it rather than, as I did uh, when my children were younger, get angry with it. And they, they became resentful because they the, one of the great stories I had was my, I can see my middle daughter, Tyrion, you know, crying with me once in Hong Kong. And she said, it's okay, Dad, but you still have got nothing to talk about in school because, you know, all my friends are listening to, and I can't remember the, the series, they were keeping in touch with this particular series that everyone, she then got isolated in school because she wasn't listening to the three or four episodes that they were listening to. So indirectly, I was affecting her ability to connect when she was in direct contact with her friends. So I just, the message being, Richman, I think is, We've got to adjust as older people with this generation of, of learners. Yeah, that's a really interesting point you made there. And it, it kind of highlights that their, their communication and connection, albeit through a screen, is, is so immediate. Whereas, you know, when, when we were at school, if we all watched something, we you know, have to wait till the next day to, to talk about it. You certainly wouldn't be, oh, oh mum, dad, can I, can I ring up so-and-so because we want to talk about what we're <laughs> You know, I mean, I just didn't yeah. didn't even come into it at all. So there was there was much longer time between, which maybe is why we're we're I don't know we're a bit more patient because we only knew knew that world where things didn't happen so quickly. I, yeah, I got to agree with you. I think I think even in the workforce, even in in my I, I've been guilty of it. You know that that instant reply into emails, that instant connection. It was a stamp and an envelope when we were. Um, and or it was a dial of phone, which you know the MBO dials that used to retract. It took it took a good bit of time to actually dial a <laughs> dial a number in our time. So I think we did have a lot more patience, and we and we were far more present because we we weren't jumping. You know this this dynamic uh, digital age that we exist in has affected us as a generation as much as as much as the youngsters. But that instant gratification. I think is causing a lot of uh, negative emotion, a lot of anxiety. Um, if youngsters do not get the instant answers, they either respond to anxiety because they can't get an answer to, to a future event, which is anxiety in itself. And what I see a lot of as well is anger. If, if something goes wrong with something, there's no patience to put it right. 
And the classic is, you know, if God forbid they lose their phone or God forbid the battery goes on their phone, mm. the anxiety around that. Again, I, I've, I've used a little um, experiment with, with a couple of classes. I did a bit of teaching in Hong Kong, coaching in Hong Kong, and, uh, and I was trying to um, talk to the guys about habit and addiction and, and maladaptive behaviours, and, and one was with the phone. Uh, and through, through some activities, just trying to raise their awareness of being present. And um, the one little experiment I did was that I sat and I can see the guys now. There's 25 boys, 17, 18-year-old boys sat in the classroom. I said, okay, boys, before we start this set session, which was just going to do a bit of a sharing connection, I said, can you all bring out your mobile phones and place them on my desk at the front of the room? Well, the reaction in there, there was people hiding them. There was a couple of boys hiding them under there. I'm going, sir. <laughs> uh, then there was like sort of, oh, my God, I could see physical change and anxiety in the room. And there were some that just waltzed up. So all of a sudden, the dynamic of the room changed hugely. You started mm -hmm. to see personalities. You started to see addictive be, uh, reaction, meaning not wanting to let go of their phone. Anyway, the, most of them, apart from one uh, who'd hid his phone under the chair, brought them up. I sat them back down and I said, um, how are you all feeling? Of course, I got a variety of replies. One guy, very flippant. I don't need it, sir. I don't need it. It's okay. I don't need it, die. And then there were others saying, oh, I, I, need my, I need to have my phone. I need to be holding it. I need to be um, in touch with it. I said, well, sit there now. We just did a little exercise. And, and then about two or three minutes later, I said, oh, look, we've, we're going, what I've decided, I'm going to keep the phones till the end of the day. <laughs> how, are you, how are you feeling now? Well, there was, I'm going, I'm leaving the room. There was anger in the room. There was, now you're not, I got it back. I said, you know, that's unreasonable. I'll be, I'll be in touch. And it was just a little, I obviously didn't cause particularly my stress. And they, they, they very quickly um, caught on to what I was saying. But um, again, it was just that raising the awareness of the reliance on instant gratification and being connected. But what is connected? Were they connected with people? Well, yeah, they were, but through their phones or through the digital age. So it's yeah. not direct contact, is it? So just another little experiment. Any listeners might want we're in coaching and teaching, just try it. Yeah, um, yeah. So once they, they'd untied you from the chair, um, <laughs> did they... <laughs> Did, did you ever sort of talk to them about it again later on and sort of discover how, you know, how they felt about it? Did they kind of have some sort of awakening and think, oh, gosh, actually, you know, look, my phone's only, you know, three metres over there. But boy, it's like I've had my arm cut off. Absolutely. You know, there was a there was a process then of habit changing. There was the process of actually getting them to meditate after that. So I got them to sit. I brought them, to, I came them to be present and I talked to them about anxiety meditation. So I talked to them about sitting there, staying present and actually feeling into that anxiety and breathing through it. And just talking to them, you know, try it, lock your phone, have a period in the house where you give your phone to your mum and dad for half hour and experience the sensation of it, work through it and, and put some interventions in, um, which which since those sort of practices, I've read Permission to Feel, as I said, by, by, um, by Mark Brackett. And he uses, he uses a framework called RULA. Re recognize, 
So we're talking about the emotion. So recognize the emotion, the anxiety in this instance. Understand it. Where is it coming from? It's coming from that inability to have my phone or disconnect. Then label it. What is it? Is it anger? Or is it it's important we label the emotion as well? Is it frustration? Is it anger? Is it is it um, anxiety? Because they've all got different outcomes and ways to regulate. Then we express it. Then we so the E, the ruler is E, uh, express, talk about it, even say to mum and dad, go, I feel anxiety around not having my phone, or even to a brother or sister, or just to yourself. Yeah. And then regulate that. Then the last one is to regulate it, which is to, to breathe, to sit there, accept the feeling, and to start to work with it. So I guess I was doing that, but not in such a formalized sort of, I was just erasing that awareness to this. What I believed at the time was very much a maladaptive kind of behavior. Anything, when it deal with something, maybe like a tough a tough decision on selection, or I was, te- I was coaching them rugby or, you know, coming up to a semi-final or final of the cup where we were, rather than address it, they would go to their phone and start mm-hmm. to play a game. Yeah. And now then becomes, you know, maladaptive behaviours of things like alcohol, drugs, you know, I think it's a digital age, gaming, they, they can be very damaging if they are not addressed and, 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 and spoken about. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I use something similar called, called RAIN with, with people and, and, what, so what you're encouraging to do, what encouraging people to do is 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 to is to face those those nor, you know normal emotions that everyone experiences, rather than just try and cover them up, distract, pretend they're not there um, in in their early days. Because as you said, if they if you don't learn ways and, and expand your repertoire of tools and actually learn how to transform those experiences or realize the importance of them, you, you might just carry on trying to cover them up or distract with something, you know, worse than a phone like drugs or alcohol or cigarettes or whatever, whatever makes mm. you feel slightly better in that moment. But, Absolutely. But in the long term is, is damaging and harmful. Oh yeah. I, I, absolutely spot on Richmond. I, I, you know, I, the understanding is that is, is that is the, is the of the ruler, recognize is to recognize. Well, perhaps I ought to go back one step and tell you a little story there. Recent classroom experience. Um, you know, I was a tutor to 18 year olds, year 13, just trans- transforming, and I started to introduce, you know, these kind of emotional awareness EQ. I stuck a big EQ in the middle of the whiteboard at the front of the classroom one morning. Um, stuck, the guys came in and I asked them, I should check in how they were feeling. Um, and they were struggling. They were struggling to actually, you know, verbalize the way they were feeling. Some were okay. So I asked them to um, list uh, or call out um, emotions. Just, just literally talk to me, guys. You know, it's two, three, four, five hundred emotions that they could shout out for just the next two minutes. Just shout out emotions and words were coming out, and none of them, very little of them, were, were, were emotions. In actual fact, in, a, in about a minute's minute or two minute period I had three of the emotions anger happy and sad these are 18 year olds mm. they couldn't see frustration they couldn't see um, joy they, they couldn't verbalize emotions and this is what Mark Brackett talks about um, about and about recognizing what they are and being able to verbalize it then lo and behold I sort of said has anyone heard of EQ and I was told quite no you've got that wrong sir it's IQ <laughs> I said no, no, it's EQ, guys. We're not talking about IQ. 
intellect, intelligence. We're talking about emotional intelligence. And there wasn't one in the group that had really learned anything about emotional intelligence and, and being and being aware of it. So I think there's a yeah there's a critical element here of of teaching and putting systems. I think the lead schools in the world in the UK are using systems and they they place a massive emphasis on um, on the on, on the kids and the staff actually. Um, understanding that the staff are probably more important than the kids because if the staff don't understand it, um, they they won't transmit that to the to the kids. So I think there's there's a massive um, area of growth over the next ten years of, of of emotional awareness raising and education. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's to to you and I. You know, we we speak a very similar language, and it's interesting that that those those you know youngsters couldn't name emotions i mean you know we know that the, the more words you have in your vocabulary to describe how you feel um the more emotionally flexible you'll be the better you'll handle situations because there's there's nuance there so you know if if your your only way of labeling a particular feeling is anger well then it's it's anger as opposed to being able to know, well, no, I'm just a little bit irritated. I'm just a little bit frustrated, yeah. which is very different. And, and we'll have a very different set of responses and things that we can do, um, opening up all sorts of other possibilities. So, I mean, it strikes me that, that a sensible way to start every single lesson is with two or three minutes of how, how is everybody? Absolutely. So, something that I I picked up on a on a men's retreat actually, a men without masks, uh, with Craig White, a good friend now, um, who I believe was leading in men's work in terms of I needed to take a few masks off that that uh, uh, that that I was wearing. So, one of the one of the, one of the sort of methods that we used as part of the process, and I use constantly now is is circles you sit in a circle and you just check in and you check out um and the check in is to see where where we're at um just just you can it can be one word it can be three words we normally ask for three words um and it's to try and set and and i know it will resonate with you rich in terms of we sit and try and ground ourselves and then we say well how are we feeling how are we feeling because the mind is only our gateway to our thoughts are only the gateway to the emotions that live in our bodies. And, and you would know that. So we process something. We then feel the emotions in the body. Where do we feel the anxiety? Well, I feel most of mine in my belly and chest. So if we can, if we can sit with a group of youngsters or a group and say, okay, guys, just, just breathe, just, just 10 breaths. Right. Okay. That's all I want you to do now. Rather than what I was seeing constantly was students entering the room on phones. <laughs> Did you come back to the digital age? Connecting with maybe something that had overnight, even playing games, not actually sitting and, and, and checking in with themselves and thinking, right, I got the next lesson. How is that making me feel? And interestingly, I introduced it. We do one a week because I could tell it was very alien. Um, uh, and an interesting another little story was that then the, the, a number of the students felt intimidated, felt it was creating anxiety that they had to share their emotions. It was so unusual for them to sit in a classroom and share their emotions with their fellow students uh, and with the staff. Uh, it was creating anxiety. So I had to stop it. 
and, and it, it's quite a sad day when I had to stop it because in in educational systems now there's safeguarding issues and of course I don't want to be you know so there's a way to introduce it without a doubt um, and and I was very clear that everything was welcome including nothing so it wasn't that they, they had a couple of the guys were great all very open very vulnerable very wanted mm-hmm. to share the depth others just didn't want to say anything so I did make it very very clear that everything was welcome including nothing but I think it's as basic as that with this Gen Z group and, and with a lot of maybe the boomer boomer generation teachers we've we've got to bring them together we've got the extremes um of uh, and there's anxiety there for different reasons um but there's there's anxiety and anger there for for very different reasons but this is the same emotion yeah yeah that's interesting and and i was going to say to you actually you know what how do you deal with with because it could be adults kids teens old people whatever you know Get, get a group of people sat around. There's always going to be some willing to share, some willing to overshare, um, and then some who are like, well, no, I, well, I'm not comfortable in this situation. Have you got any ideas about how, how that could be done to make it even more kind of safer and, in, and inclusive? Uh, what the, what the word that comes to mind immediately is trust. You, 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 you can't go in. I've, I've run, still running a couple of, you know, voluntary circles that, that guys tap into, they're so powerful in terms of sharing. And that's, you can structure the circles, you can structure that you must make it psychologically safe and you must gain trust. Um, and there must be complete confidentiality. And so anybody who's starting this kind of talking or group group talk would be establishing the rules of the circle for, for want of a better phrase. It's, it's laying down what the circle's about it's it's giving the purpose to the circle, safe, comfortable, sharing, invite and vulnerability. And then over the first two or three meetings um, and two or three classrooms, it's actually building that rapport. For I, you know, before before working with a particular group of students I worked with, I'd already had my five, 10 minute speed dates with them. So I knew I knew their background. I, I didn't wade in. It was six weeks in. I felt I'd built a bit, a bit of a rapport up. Um, and then I listened to their feelings. So it was trust. It was gaining their trust. And, and you can imagine, you know, I'm sat in there as an older mad Welshman, a Z of rugby, mm-hmm. and they're looking at me, and I'm going, there's, there's this mad bloke who's got a bit of a softer side to him. Um, he's not the normal rugby boy. And, I, and I, it was said, you know, so mm-hmm. um, you have got to build that rapport and trust up with the group, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose then you, you would also need, you know, some kind of, of backing service where if a kid was really struggling, either it was obvious because they didn't say anything or they, they did say something that, that raised, uh, that, that triggered sort of alarm bells and concerns somewhere that then they can go to, to be soothed, to be cared for, to, to have their needs met. I guess, yeah, I guess the, one of the major major um, messages I give it when all is welcome to it's a non-judgmental situation so nobody in the circle is very neutral so nobody's going to offer solutions and and that's critical you know you, you're not sat there then talking about the problems that they've shared it's a sharing circle you can offer encouragement you can offer support uh, and you're right it's, it's important that if somebody does get to that level of you know I've had tears in circles, you know, I, I've broke down in circles, you know, um, it's not dealing with it there and then it's making it, 
it's building around rapport so that the, the the student, the people that are involved in it can actually talk to you one-on-one and then of course within schools following the safeguarding um, and, and, and looking at the pastoral care support um, unfortunately at the school, very fortunately at the school that, that I'm at, they have a, a well-being platform which if you feel um, but it, 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 it often isn't I've got to say, in, in my experiences with my particular group, there was never a case uh, needing to refer. They just, sir, can we have a catch up one when I'm, I'm stressed about my exams? It wasn't, it wasn't major, major issues. It was, I was just giving them a platform to talk about normal things, as I call it. You know, that exam, you know, their mocks coming up. What university do I go to? I'm feeling anxious about mum and dad wanting me to go to a Russell Group University. I don't want to go to a Russell Group unit. So it wasn't what me and you would perhaps consider as major issues, but it was causing emotional stress for them. And it was causing anxiety, um, upset, that then they could verbalise and going back to the ruler sort of platform, they were able to express it and then regulate it and walk away. So thanks, sir. Great. I've gone have a look at a couple of different different other different perspectives now. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, but obviously, as Richmond, as you point out, there has got to be that avenue that if you feel there needs to be intervention, that you can particularly, you know, in 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 a school in a school sense. I also run adult um, adult circles, and uh, you know, very much independent. Um, there's a Gen Z that needs to be able to express and understand their feelings. Yeah, yeah. Do you, do you think that? it's as this is the sort of thing that could be applied in in any school absolutely uh i think the key to it is again sorry to keep referring back to mark Bragg, but he's, he's had such a power of effect and he talks about the teachers and and um management and the principals as he calls them in obviously in in the in the us um but it, it can be introduced if there's a if there's a willingness to do it um a willingness to send a confidence to set time aside uh, in the in the school day it could be introduced to every single school um, uh, and certainly as he identifies his more successful platforms have been set up with senior managements in schools that are willing to introduce and give time um, to uh, to the platform and the confidence that and this is a key the confidence that spending more time on this will improve results spending more time on this will actually keep you up the league tables. And I say that because I know that over the last 15 years in the UK, we've, we've gone into a situation where we seem to judge all our schools on, on the way they do academically, their results, their A-level results. I don't see any results in August when the GCSEs and A-levels are about how well the kids are doing emotionally. Yeah. So I, I understand I understand that, that we have gone through a generation um, of results results dictating performance indicators it's time to change it's time to change and be judged by how many good young men young girls we're sending out into the world as better people so it's time to change and i can it can be introduced to every school if there's a willingness to do it yeah because you say you know the the schools are being judged but actually it's not the schools is it really when you think about it it's it's each kid is being (laughs) judged and they and they feel that they feel that in in lots of different shapes and and forms. Um, 
and you know the teachers to me always seem to be stuck in the middle of course you know in any profession you get you get a range of of characters and, and skills and willingness and openness and all that that kind of thing um but but teachers are subject to you know pressures from from all directions aren't they from you know the school and what the school's trying to do and then from from the government and that's always you know the ideas are always changing from from the kids from the parents and and so i always wonder how much real genuine authentic support there are for teachers well, it's, a, it's a it's a great point um i think before i answer that question i think as parents we have a massive massive influence on this i think having been a college principal having been a senior management um in education, the pressure, most of the pressure comes from parents' um, expectation, wanting their kids to be the best they can possibly be. There are many parents out, out there as well that are not, you know, demanding in terms of academic results. We weren't as parents. We've got a daughter that left school at 16 as a horse riding instructor. We've got a daughter that's in Royal Holloway studying psychology. So, but we've never put them, they were always encouraged to do what they want to do as long as they were fulfilling their goals and happy and achieving what they wanted to achieve. I see a huge amount of pressure being put on the school, the school governance and the school senior management by, by, um, by parents. Um, obviously then in the background is the government demands, as you've mentioned. Uh, and I think, um, you know, it's, it's important to recognise this and it's important, even more important than as a school to have a confidence in your, um, your platform and to be offering um, truly authentic delivery coming onto your part that you can be confident that if a, if a, if a member, if a, if, a, if a parent or an inspection challenges our platform, it's authentic, it delivers what it says it delivers and, it, and, it, and ultimately it keeps, the, it keeps the students at the centre and the core of everything that is, and we are talking about well-being platforms here. We're now talking about emotional awareness uh, education alongside your, your, your academic subjects. And I think it has to be authentic and it has to deliver what it says it's deliver. And it, it takes time, mm -hmm. takes resource. And it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of powerful leadership to, to put those platforms in. And it's not easy. It's not easy um, without a doubt. And, and, and going on to the other, because I don't want to, the teachers do need as much support. Um, I think it's the key area of the transition into a, an emotionally smart school is that the teachers have to be looked at. Mm -hmm. I've witnessed burnout, you know, it's unforgiving. Long days at the chalk face, teaching, teaching between 25 and 30 kids Constantly, you know, seven hours back to back with the odd break. Um, you know, teachers are under a lot of pressure, all the extracurricular activity that they're expected to do. So the teachers do need that emotional support as well, mm. uh, as much, if not more. Because if you've got an angry teacher or a stressed teacher going into a classroom, what's that going to manifest itself as? It's going to come out as anger. If you've got a calm, um, you know, uh, well, a, a person who concentrates on their well-being and is it's got reasonable working hours um, comes in and is calm and nicely and happy 
they're going to deliver their behaviours to the kids. They're going to be happy. So the the, the support the teachers is critical moving forward. I believe. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it does beg the question: Why, why on earth are we flogging ourselves from first thing in the morning till last thing at night? Just generally in our society, I suppose it's you know it's more than just schools. I mean, what, why, what, why is that deemed to be a good thing in any shape or form to have to get up really early, <laughs> to be rushing around, and then and then not have any breaks, not look after yourself, not eat um why why is that a good idea on any level i'd be interested to talk to you about this i don't know when it happened but it it certainly it's happened in our i say in our lifetime but in 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 our generational shift certainly isn't the gen z um but in one of the generations between mine and yours there was a badge of honor as i call it if you were seen to be exhausted if you were seen to be stressed if you were seen to be reliant on a few glasses of wine every night of the week if he was seen to not have any hours in the day, it was worn as a badge of honour. If you were working weekends, and it almost, it'd be interesting to get your thoughts on it, Richmond. I'd like to narrow, it's a good one, that's raised. When did it happen? What what period? What, you know, when did it become uh, that badge of honour and acceptable to work stupid hours because you were judged? It was weak if you said you were tired. It was, we're in a generation of well-being awareness now. Did that happen five years ago, six years ago? Previous generation was, nah, get on with it, toughen up. You know, mm-hmm. you're not working long hours. I'm doing 62, I can hear it now. Well, I've done 71, 71 hours this week. Oh, well done, fantastic. It's like, it wasn't until people started to actually speak up uh, and say, I'm ill, I'm not feeling well. Uh, it wasn't until people started to express their, their mental health issues that actually somebody said, well, hang on, there's something wrong. It's the working hours. It's, it's, but it did become self-perpetuating as well. It, well, it definitely has. And, and those seeds were sown a few years ago, as, as you said. Um, and, and now there's, there's all sorts of you know, health-related costs to that, which are being passed down through the genes biologically as well as I mean, we know that that you know certain things are passed through the genes in terms of stress um, from from way back, um, but also in the in the behaviours modelled. As you said, it's um, to be able to say, yeah, I just get five hours sleep a night. I get up at half four. I go to the gym for a, for an hour and, and and cycle a bike as fast as I can. My heart rate seven hundred and nine, and then I go and and I'm in the office at, at seven. And I'm there till ten. I don't need any breaks, you know. And that that seems to be a good thing. Um, I, I and it and it sort of seems to have translated out into all areas. I saw quite an amusing um, cartoon the other day where it showed this this guy talking to a runner who was looking at his watch, and and he's and the guy says to him, oh, "Did you have a good run?" And the runner quotes all his stats. Oh yeah, it was a great run. I did it in this time, this distance. Da da da. And then the other character goes, oh, did you have fun? And then the next part of the cartoon, there's silence and the guy's still looking at his watch. And then he replies, oh, it doesn't say. And you know, <laughs> the, point, the people are so, and, and funny enough, I, I came off, well, I haven't come off. I've, I've taken the Strava app off my phone because I fell into, you know, we're all human. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm not saying that I don't do these things. You know, I fell into the trap of, of checking it, getting frustrated, seeing someone gone for a run and then thinking, oh, 
but then you know and we're forever comparing ourselves but as um i don't know uh, you listen to the johnny wilkinson podcast the, re- the yeah. one high performance and he talks about this comparison who's the best in the world and it, and it's just such a good point the fact that you can't you can't compare because uh, you know two people well one person might have you know seven kids three jobs um, and the other person, you know, might might work X number of days a week, not many, have a fortune in the bank, have a personal trainer, the best bike in the world, um, you know, a cleaner and all the rest of it. And yet you're comparing how quickly you recover, you run up and down a hill or something. It just makes no yeah. sense whatsoever. And same with with kids and that classic experiment where they got them to to take a step forward if their parents were married, if they were at private school, if this, that and the other. And then they could see where they where they were starting in life and it wasn't to make people feel good or bad about where they've started in life but to make them appreciate that yeah you know you are you are turning out performances at your cricket or whatever but but actually you know think about the fact that at home you know you've got your own net you know you you have coaching three times a week in an amazing school that guy there well he doesn't even own his own kit but he's got a lot of talent so let's appreciate where we are and, and help each other. So this this competitiveness and this I've got to be the best um, is is still a very you know damaging and ugly um, attitude that exists. Yeah, I, I I got to absolutely totally agree, and I resonate with that. It almost goes back to the full circle that we've talked about, which is getting to understand the individual, isn't it? Well, you know, you you mentioned stepping forward if your parents are. A divorced if your parents are together it, you know those kind of things so as, as a coach uh, and this is what performance lifestyle taught me was find out about the individual circumstances and then you can help those performers perform at the best of their ability with within their world I, and i have listened to the johnny wilkins and i thought it was fantastic because you know he how can he compare it as he says how can i compare the johnny wilkinson killer kick the kick now i'm a different man I can go back to the, the the man I was before, and and everyone is everyone in, in that sphere is has been educated and conditioned differently as we've grown up. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's the one area that that at the moment when we are when we're educating and coaching kids, we've got a tendency to lump them all in, particularly in team sports or in the same classroom. Um, and we don't consider those individual differences. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. If I mean, if you were designing, and maybe you've already done this, so if you were designing, you know, a, a well-being platform, as as you put it, what what would be your key components in there that you would that you would include? Sort of the non-negotiables. What what really stands out? Well, interestingly, uh, um, we I believe that we introduced one of the first integrated uh, well-being platforms into a professional sporting environment in Hong Kong. Because I was passionate about, you know, when when we had um, basically players coming into the professional era, really coming in from degrees and from work, because we, we obviously started a professional platform. I thought it was important that as well as stretching, weights, all the, all the stuff that you, you know, you accept, skill development, one of the things that needed to be placed in a weekly program needed to be at least two to three hours of directed well-being a bit like we said a bit like emotional awareness and and the platform would be for me looking at it would be the three c's we called it which was 
the three C's being culture, connection and cause. And, um, you know, the culture was understanding uh, the culture in which we existed. So, for, for instance, you know, in the situation we were in, there were it was multicultural um, um, uh, individuals. It made so it made the, the culture in which we were a team very multicultural. We had thirteen different nationalities, wow. so it was to appreciate the culture around us. We were in Hong Kong, China, to 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 be very culturally aware, and also then through that cultural awareness, how it could how how it how it our, um, how it uh, enhanced our lives how it added value to our lives. So cultural awareness, not being ignorant to what's about around you and the things that are about you. So it gives you that, which leads on to connection. You know, a lot of people talk about spirituality. Um, lots of men don't connect with spirituality. So we talk about connection and connection and spirituality. We can connect it to, you know, just a, a walk. You know, I like going for a walk or I like go into the gym and people say, oh, you can't use that as spirituality. Well, it's a connection with exercise. And, and if you believe in it um, and your connection is through, that could be a connection with meditation, through breath work. So all the traditional ones like yoga that people would call about spirituality and connection, but there are other things to explore what the individual is connected with. Many, many men, you know, can't meditate. They say they can't, they can, they can coach and train themselves to, but initially they shy away from it because it's been very much a, again, it's been a very dominated female yoga and meditation has been dominated in well-being over the last 15 years by women. So is it that they can't or they don't want to, or they see it as feminine? Yeah. Uh, you know, so, so connection, um, c- connection was the other one, spirituality connection, we call it three C's and then cause cause was having something there um, that you get up in the morning and you give selflessly, to charity a cause getting up maybe you know we we used to take the groups out to to help the homeless and out uh, packs um but a cause in in your week a cause that that matters you know it can be planting trees it could be e- ecological awareness but having something that you give and a, and a cause you get up for and i don't mean get up and earn money i mean a cause that is selfless so it would be the three c's it would be cultural connect culture culture connection and cause and we set that up and then of course for a professional platform of the male and females we made sure that there were specific activities linked um and commitment linked to that on a weekly basis to to develop our well-being platform it it strikes me that that that's something and i I love those three c's It, it it strikes me as something that you could fairly easily apply in both coaching and the school environment. Yeah, and it is. We did, we, we did make it a transferable model, so to speak. Um, uh, and we, we've got a framework in which we said, it was myself and Sarah, my wife, that predominantly, and, and Dr. Lee Jones, who was a doctor of psychology, who happened to be coaching, um, coaching with me at the time, and the three of us just brainstormed. And what we did, we simplified it. We think it's, the models are simple. So what goes alongside those you know for instance in 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 cause i think of the young kids today and to be fair to to a lot of schools including seaford college they've got charitable organizations they work with and so it's aligning and 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 the students and and the players or anyone you know organizations where staff get together um and and kids get together outside the, the the working environment or the school environment and they 
they may be go go into you know poverty areas maybe go and help in 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 things like uh, what do we use the um the orphanages and, and 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 go and see what life is like out there and develop that charitable cause out there but yeah. um certainly it's it's you know i i i, I guess that all of these things are kind of being delivered like and you have people out there going well, well we do that we do yoga and we do I'm not sure whether, you know, we do breathwork or we do put in a framework, identify it as well-being, identify it as emotional awareness, identify it as a set period and don't put it in as a, you know, an add-on after work. So don't yeah. put it on as CP, CPD when you st- your staff have got to give up more time. Don't put it on as an extracurricular activity. Put it into the core of the day so that it's replacing something that may be stressing the, the kids or stressing the staff make a commitment as a leadership team to put it into the core of the organization yeah. uh, and, and make it, make it important rather than voluntary. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, you, what you were saying there, you know, triggered that thought that, that, you know, a lot of places will say, Oh yeah, we, we do that. We, we tick that box <laughs> and it is, it's ticking the box and, and the kids know they do it. And the kids know, as in, they know that the school does this, they do that. But there's no engagement with it. There's no emotional engagement with it. There's no, there's no real meaning. What, why is that important? Why are we doing it? They can't tell you that in many cases. We, we do it. We do yoga. Well, it helps us stretch rather than actually, well, something like that or some other practice is about bringing us together. It's about appreciating that we can do certain things. And actually, it's about teaching us all that, that self-care is, is a vital skill of being well. Um, so that, as you said there, I think that's the area where people or schools and leadership need to make, make the glue, bring it, bring it together. So the kids know why they're doing what they're doing. Yeah, certainly. I, you know, we've, we've always in, in rugby and I know that that's my background, I'm a sports teacher, I love my sport. You know, we've always talked about coach to coaches. We, this has gone on for years, ever since I was at uni, you know, coach to coaches. I had to be coached as a coach. I had to be we we often don't <clears throat> excuse me we often don't use the expression of uh, teach the teachers um, or coach the teachers and I, I think I think there's a there's a massive need out there to to educate the educationalists teach the teachers and coach the coaches in the area that we're talking about raising the emotional awareness raising um, this um, this knowledge I, I go back to it in that. It needs to be part of and inbuilt into the everyday hours, either in the workplace, you know, in, in corporate organisations, which you see more and more out there now. They are putting set times aside, but certainly, you know, the schools that they're introducing as part of the, the core curriculum are making a massive difference. And it's making a massive difference to results. It's making a massive difference to well-being, and it's making, making a massive difference to the working environment, both as teachers and 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 students yeah yeah it is it is die you sound like a man on a mission i just i, I found my purpose richmond you know I, I i i feel passionate about that I, I i love working with people i am you know my career you know i started teaching and coaching at 22 years of age i'm 57 this year you know this my it's my life i've had a great journey I've got a wonderful family. Um, you know, I've been all around the world w- w- with with 
connecting with people. And the last four or five years, um, seeing my family grow, seeing transition, I think transition, what we started off with, is, is a major part of learning. Um, it challenging yourself, transitioning yourself to another learning environment, another course. I don't mean changing jobs necessarily. Um, I just mean challenging yourself to, to working in different platforms and experiencing different things. And that has probably given my, my, my latest sort of energy purpose in life uh, to, to, to kick on and to, to look for other, uh, no, to be passionate, to all of this work I do at the moment is, is unpaid. I, I, I got a passion for it. I'm just following my purpose and, and hopefully um, over the coming weeks, months, I'll, I'll get another permanent job, so to speak, or I'll continue and develop this um, alongside whatever I'm working in. But yeah, I've got a passion for working with people, always had, and um, I hope that that can continue till the day I die, really. Um, <laughs> uh, I've got a real passion at the moment because I've got three Gen Z kids. Uh, I've got a wife that works in well-being, and I, yeah, I've got a passion to 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 try and do something about rather than just raising the awareness is to put platforms in that become, that become the norm that people don't talk about. And they just come in and they, they go to a yoga class or they can breathe and they meditate. And it's just part, part of everyday life. Like yeah. exercise was when it was introduced as a, the mad stuff during the seventies and eighties, when we had step all over the place and bloody aerobics and, and all that kind of, you know, because there was a period where people didn't go out and re exercise regularly, you know. Yeah. So yeah. there will be a there will be a time when I believe that everyone will want to do a bit of well-being, and and that's all we can do is just keep keep talking about it like you are, and keep spreading the word. I think. Yeah, yeah. So so it sounds like your ideal place to work. If you end up working with someone, or or as it sounds, you know, who who knows, maybe you'll end up just doing your own thing and getting those messages out there um, for the coaching and, and education world, but somewhere that's that's open to well, what you and I would agree are just very sensible and practical approaches to to helping kids shape positive futures. Yeah, absolutely. It's that connection, I guess. It's it's uh, having open, working with teams of people, managing again. I was very lucky to to have a journey in Hong Kong where I was able to lead this. I was a senior manager. I was a COO. Um, I was a national coach. I was I was able as one of the leaders in the in in in, this, in the structure to to introduce these platforms with groups of staff that believed in it and groups of staff that didn't. So. It was just nice to have that journey. So yeah, my ideal world is just to work with those people with open minds um, and and give it a go, like we give give more things a go. But though, as a leader as well, to inspire teams around me uh, and people around me to come on a journey. That's the kind of leader I'm. I'm humanistic. I like taking people with me. Um, I don't like the confrontational leadership type of of, of and I, transformational. You know, I'm qualified as a transformational coach for those reasons. Uh, over recent years to to actually understand uh, the transformational journey that you go through as one as a teacher, coach, leader, uh, and more importantly, as a dad, um, as a parent, and as a husband and uh, husband and, and, and dad and son. So that, that's been another part of the journey. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, listen, I'm, I'm going to very much enjoy continuing watching what you do, and hopefully we're going to have 
a lot more conversations because um, there's, it just resonates enormously. And, you know, both as a, as what I, you know, as a parent and, and what I do in, you know, with, with my life as well as a, as a professional. So um, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, where, where can people find you? Yeah, at the moment, you know, my, my profile on LinkedIn is, is my, uh, I'm Di Reese, uh, D-A-I, Reese. Um, I'm profiling myself and just doing some articles and doing some leadership stuff. So LinkedIn at the moment, I've got sort of my website in the background um, coming on, but not, not ready for any kind of release at the moment. I'm not in that space. So please reach out, uh, read a few articles I'm putting out there. I'm just about to do one on on shaming vulnerability um, uh, um, in the next week or so. I've been doing a few on leadership, values-based leadership. So LinkedIn profile is probably my best go-to at the moment. Fantastic. That's great. And I'll, I'll put that on the um, on the show page so people can come and have a look and, and contact you. Um, and um, and I, I suspect there'll be some more parts to this conversation um great to to touch base again um and chat more about um how how you're finding things and what kind of discoveries you're making yeah it'd be great i really enjoyed the chat um it's taken different wines as the river as i love it my my flowing down the river i've really enjoyed it it's been meandering and uh, it's been a great journey today i've really enjoyed it didn't know where it was going to go but thanks for giving me the opportunity richmond really really enjoyed the chat and yeah would love to come back on and and talk other areas of what we've what we've already started talking about brilliant that's fantastic Di. thanks for uh sharing your thoughts it's been brilliant take care thanks Richard. all the best Bye. and you bye-bye